Welcome. You're listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Visit us on the web at vedanta.org. Good morning. I'll begin with a chat. Om Sam Gachadvam Sam Vadadvam Sam Vomanaham Sijanatam Teva Pagayata Purve Sanjanana Upasate Samano Mantra Samiti Samani Samanam Manav Sahat Chittamesham Samhanam mantram api mantrayevas samhanenavo havishaha chuhomi samhaniva akuti samhana ritayani vaha samhanamastuvomano yatahavasu sahasati om shanti shanti Shantihi Hari Om Tatsat Om. May we come together for a common purpose. May our minds be united in the quest for higher wisdom. Common be our prayer, common our goal, common be our purpose, common our ideal. United be our hearts, united be our intentions. Perfect be the harmony and the unity among us. Om peace. Peace, peace be unto us all. Good morning. I'm welcoming myself back here. Yes. For the first time in literally two months, I had foot surgery on uh, March 21st, and so the, the Buddhist truth, which Buddha runs over again and again about the transitoriness of life and all compounded matter is bound to decay rings particularly true right now. So I didn't mean to make an entrance like that. I thought for sure I'd be like running around, but it hasn't happened yet. So um, if any of you have taken a look at our bulletin, you're probably wondering why we're having a Buddha party this month, because in this month we're having three lectures on Buddha. And the reason for that is, is that in the full moon of May is the thrice blessed day. And that is the day of his birth, of his enlightenment, and of his death. This uh, month it happened to fall on May 10th, which was also Devi Prana's birthday, making it a fourth blessed day. So uh, many people, of course, say that it's a Buddhist temple. And uh, for those of you who don't know, it is not a Buddhist temple. It's a Hindu temple. However, the Buddhist and the Hindu traditions are extremely close, very, very similar. Swami Vivekananda said that Buddha was the rebel child of Hinduism. So there is actually only one point at which we completely diverge, and that is the Buddhist teachings say that everything changes, everything is transitory, everything is samsara. And the Hindu tradition said, yes, everything changes, everything is samsara, except for our divine nature within, the Atman, which is the nature of pure bliss, pure consciousness, absolute being itself, which is one with the infinite divine existence that pervades the universe, Brahman. Apart from that, we were absolutely in complete agreement with Buddhist tradition. And so remember that it started out as sort of a reform movement within the Hindu tradition. And if you look over there, there's a painting of the Buddha done by one of our glorious monks in Tribuka, Swami Tadabhanada. And on this side is, is Jesus. So, you know, they're held in complete reverence by all of us. 
You know, many of us have a way of thinking, either consciously or unconsciously, that if only I had this, only I had this, I would be happy. Now, that this might be if only I was 10 pounds lighter, if only I had this relationship, if only I had the, the iPhone 7, if only, you know, if only I had just a little bit more money, then I would be happy. Um, and often it's not even conscious. It's just this somehow grinding that we feel underneath. But um, we can learn from the Buddha that everything is, is not enough. Uh, Buddha was born, of course he wasn't born Buddha, his name was Siddhartha Gautama, and he was born 2,500 years ago, 500 years before the birth of Christ. And he was born in Lumbini, which right now is in southern Nepal. So um, his name was Siddhartha Gautama, and he was born of the Sakya dynasty. Now, that doesn't mean that either the, the television show or the dynasty of... So his father wasn't Genghis Khan. It wasn't, he didn't rule the world. But India, Tibet, Nepal, Pakistan, all these areas, these were just a bunch of feudal kingdoms. And Siddhartha's father was one such feudal king. Now, from all accounts, Siddhartha Gautama had it all going for him. He was extraordinarily beautiful to look upon, and he had a lot. Of, he, had, he was born into immense wealth. So even before he was born, they said he was so beautiful to look upon. And his mother, Yashodara, they said, was majestic as the queen of heaven, filled with exceeding grace and dignity. So, you know, you, you have this like, wow, this is a lucky child. And there are many, many miraculous events surrounding his birth. They said the moment he was born, the heavens rained showers of flowers. That when he was born, there was a burst of light around the universe. When he was born, the blind who were so eager to, to see his glories could see. And the deaf and the mute were able to speak and talk of the glories that were to come. When he was born, all the ferocious beasts became still, and peace encircled the world. Such was the glory that was to come with the birth of the Buddha. Such was the blessing. And we can either see this as metaphorical, or we can see it as mythological or hyperbolic, or we can see it as a literal truth. But I think what matters is the idea that the strength of one person's spiritual power quite literally changed the world. There's only a handful of people that were ever born that were able to do that, and Siddhartha Gautama was one of them. Now, as you probably know, astrologers had forecast at his birth that he, his birth was so extraordinary that he would do one of two things. Either he would be a world conqueror, or he would be a world renouncer. And his father said, you know, I'm, I'm going to go for the conqueror one. I'm going to opt for that choice. And so he made sure that nothing would ever enter the kingdom that would ever make Buddha or the Siddhartha want to renounce it. So he made sure that no ugliness should ever come in, no sadness should ever come in, and everything would be totally hunky-dory. And truly, he had it all. He was extremely handsome, he was wealthy, and uh, somehow they said he inspired trust from every person he met. Whether rich or poor, he was, it was just one of those people you just liked immediately. Siddhartha later told his disciples that he had been quite delicate. He had dressed in nothing but Banara silk. 
He had nothing but the best unguents, which he anointed his body from, from, from Benares. When he went out, he had many attendants who held white umbrellas over his head, and they were decorated with silver. And it, not only was that going for him, he had at his disposal three kingdoms and 40,000 dancing girls. What does one do with 40,000 dancing girls? I mean, I'm, where do you house them? Anyway, so he had it all. And on top of that, he had a happy marriage. He had a beautiful young wife and a son. So it's like, if we ever think, if only I had this, it's like Buddha had it, plus things we never think of. Who thinks about 40,000 dancing girls? He had it all. And still, it wasn't enough. Because the funny thing is, despite all his father efforts, one, one, one thing after another happened. And so he ran into the world that we all experience which is the world of sickness, old age, and death. He saw one day following the other, he saw a sick person, he saw an old person, and he saw a corpse. And after that, we know what's quite extraordinary about this is the Buddha, or the Siddhartha, didn't do what everyone else does. It's like, sure glad it's not me. Whoa, glad I'm not that sick person. Sure glad I'm not that old person. Sure glad that guy's dead and not me. Even from the time that he was born, he had this extraordinary ability for this profound empathy. He had profound love and compassion and sympathy for all. So he was never of the camp that, thank God, it's you and not me, and I'm, you know, I'm still okay. He took this to heart. So he had this deepest love and this real tenderness, tenderness for all beings, which combined with this fearless reasoning. His mind was like a razor, and it just completely analyzed every single thing, and then went from there to its logical conclusion, no matter how many apple carts had to be overturned. He didn't care. He was completely fearless. And this is another great lesson for us, because however smart we are, however much intellect we have, it doesn't matter if it, there isn't an equal amount of loving compassion that goes with it. Intellect is never enough. You could be the smartest engineer on the planet. If you don't have a big enough heart to go with it, it ain't worth it. it. They have to go together. So when Siddhartha saw the reality of human suffering, he couldn't go back to the palace again. Because the truth is, once we know something, we can't unknow it. Once we learn something terrible, it doesn't go away. It rests in our mind. And so that the truth of suffering became so profound in his mind that he realized he couldn't continue his life anymore. So one night at midnight, he got up and he left his sleeping wife and his son behind and he went out into the forest. He saluted them quietly and left and went into the forest and became a monk, leaving behind everything that everybody else wants. It's like we all think, hey, if I had that, then I'd be happy. If only I had those 40,000 dancing girls, then my life would be rich. But it wasn't enough. So he became a monk and he studied with first two Hindu masters and they studied yoga sutras and surely they studied other Hindu texts, but his, his heart wasn't at peace. His heart was still restless. And so then he joined a band of ascetics and he practiced severe austerities. He ate six grains of rice per day. And then he practiced such physical austerities that he said his stomach was directly against his backbone. Finally, after so much austerity, he passed out. He fainted. And a young woman happened to be passing by, and she revived him with some sweet rice pudding, pious. 
And when he recovered, he realized, you know, this asceticism doesn't work. You can't torture the body to control the mind. You have to work on the mind. And this is also when he realized that we have to follow the middle path, which is another very important lesson for us. Our body and our mind are extremely valuable tools, and there's only one per incarnation. We've only got one body and one mind per incarnation. And so it can't be tortured and it can't be pampered either. We should have the adequate and optimal amount of food and drink and clothing and whatever we use, but we shouldn't use more than what's really necessary. And we shouldn't pamper ourselves either. Again, the middle path. Have great respect for this human birth because it is exceedingly rare. When you look at all the sentient beings around us, how many of them are human beings? How many between the gnats and the, and the infinite amount of mosquitoes that somehow find us in the summer and, and all the fruit fly and everything else, how many of these beings, these sentient beings, have a human birth? Such a tiny percentage. Only with a human birth can we attain enlightenment. So the Buddha was like, this human birth is exceedingly rare and precious. Do not waste it. Do not waste it. Do not torture yourself. Treat the body with great respect. Treat the mind with great respect. And then use that for our tool for enlightenment. So he turned his back on this asceticism and as the five other ascetics that he was with, it's like, okay, you're out of here. You're, you're blowing it. You did it. You're doing it the wrong way. We know what we're doing is right. So they parted company. And then he engaged in this process of deep meditation combined with rigorous reasoning. And this is what the Buddhist path has been ever since then. Deep, profound meditation combined with rigorous reasoning, fearless reasoning. And then he reached a point where he found a peepal tree and he sat down underneath it and said, I will not leave this spot until I have found the truth. I will not get up from this spot. It's now called the immovable spot. And he touched the earth as his witness. So he sat there and he was tempted, as was, as was Jesus, as was Ramakrishna, as our great spiritual teachers. But he overcame it, and he attained enlightenment. And the joy of that enlightenment lasted. And he sat for 49 days under this tree until he attained enlightenment. And this is another great lesson for us, determination. All of us have will, but we don't use it very much. But the Buddha really emphasized the importance of using our will. He said, I will not get up until I have reached enlightenment. Sri Ramakrishna was a great advocate of be up and doing, be up and doing. He really couldn't stand a lukewarm attitude towards spiritual life. He said, some people have no grit whatsoever. He said, they're like flattened rice soaked in milk, soft and mushy. It's like, ew, <laughs> No one wants to be that. So he said, be up and doing. Have inner strength. So the Buddha was able to achieve that by determination, by will. So this is another lesson for us. If we're really serious about our spiritual life, we have to use our, we have to have determination. Otherwise, we'll get into it. Well, I don't feel like doing it tonight. No, maybe I'll do it tomorrow. Maybe, you know, maybe I'll wait till I have time. We never have time. Determination. So, when he got up after 49 days, he was enlightened and his face shone. 
He was just so extraordinary, and he radiated peace, so much so that when people saw him, they didn't say, who are you? They said, what are you? They said, are you a god? No. Are you an angel? No. Are you a saint? No. Well, what are you? I'm awake. And this is another lesson for us. Buddha, of course, when he was no longer, once he was, now that he was stood up, he was no longer Siddhartha, he was the Buddha. So he was not only extraordinarily compassionate, but he was very practical because he didn't come just for the select few. Oh, those those few people who are worthy of enlightenment for whatever reason. He had extraordinary compassion for all sentient beings, not just human beings, all beings. And he came to remove the suffering of all beings. He was, again, he really emphasized that life is one. Life is one, and we, that we should see all beings as an extension of ourselves, not just us, not just me and my family, not just all humankind, all beings as extensions, literal extensions of ourselves. And he taught us also to exchange places with one another. If you have a hard time feeling compassion for another being, for another person, exchange your place with them and see how they feel. How do we gain compassion? There's a lovely story when he was walking and teaching everywhere. He came upon a a scene of a sacrifice about to be done. There was a Brahmin priest who was about to sacrifice a goat. And the Buddha saw this and he was so, he felt so sad about this. So he saw the, the, he said, well, what are you doing? Oh, he said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to sacrifice this goat. Well, why? He said, oh, it will give me merit and I will attain heaven. I will be in an even better heaven because I will get so much merit from doing this. And the Buddha replied, well, surely if you get merit from from, uh, sacrificing a goat, you will have more merit by sacrificing a man. Please, I ask you, may I exchange my position? Let me exchange with the goat. And the priest saw that he was dead serious about that. He was, you know, when he realized that he was extraordinarily sincere and he had every intention of sacrificing his life for a goat, he fell at his feet and became his disciple. So the Buddha walked a hundred miles towards Sarnath, and, uh, towards Benares, and he ended up in Sarnath, which is fairly close to Benares. And there he preached his first lesson, his first sermon, which was setting in motion the wheel of Dharma. And who would be his audience but those five ascetics that had ditched him? The five ascetics was like, oh, here you are. And then he looked at him, and they listened to what he had to say. And they were so moved. They realized that this man had attained it, and they became his first and his closest disciples. So to these five ascetics and to us all, he gave his first lesson. And that is... He taught us all the four noble truths. Now, if we have whatever we learn from the Buddha, these four noble truths are really the linchpin of what we can learn from the Buddha. And the first noble truth is the deal breaker. Nobody likes the first noble truth. It's like, come on, it sticks in our craw. Okay, I'm going to give it, get ready. First, the truth of suffering. Great, just what you wanted to hear, right? On a nice, beautiful day, sunny outside, you can see the ocean, and then we say, 
the first truth is the truth of suffering. It's like he just didn't have the right meds. Someone today would give him some Lexapros or something and make him feel better about this. So why would anyone want to listen to about the truth of suffering, right? Well, the truth is the Buddha was an extraordinary psychologist and he also was able to think fearlessly and he took things to the very end. And so he carefully dissected the human situation and parsed it into six pieces. So if you're up for it, we'll go for that. Okay. First one, the pain of birth. Really? Birth is supposed to be a happy occasion. Now, Remember, the Buddha was not a Freudian, and he wasn't a new-agey guy. He wasn't a, you know, primal scream sort of guy. So whatever he's saying here, we have to take seriously. So let's think about it. Remember, in the womb, it's so wonderful. We have no anxieties. We have no worries. We don't suffer pain. We suffer no sorrow. We don't have anxiety about the future or, or regret about the past. We're in this total blissful state, and then out we go into the cold, cruel world. And the world is colder and crueler than sometimes we can possibly imagine. We go out there, and the worst thing is that once we have this lovely body on us, that means that we will experience the inevitable sickness, old age, and death. As long as we're born, we are going to die. There are no exceptions, no coupons for that one. No exceptions. If we're born, we're going to die. And that is the human condition. And that is the truth of suffering. The second is the suffering of sickness. Who here doesn't fear cancer or Alzheimer's? Who here doesn't fear like a life of Parkinson's or mental retardation or, or aphasia, something like that? It comes with a territory. All of us have experienced sickness, either physical or mental. And a lot of us have had plenty of a share of the, of the former. We hope to God we don't have a lot of the latter. And we know it will be in the future, and we know it very well might be the thing that takes some, some sort of sickness. We have in this lifetime, if we sign up for an incarnation, we sign up for sickness. That is the truth of suffering. Third, the suffering of getting old. That's the America's favorite. You know, America's great. We think if we have enough money, time, and effort, we can somehow escape getting old. Because all we need is some plastic surgery and some dental implants and some medication to make us feel frisky and a hair colorist and implants. And then we can have special diets and we can have cleanses. And then we can have a personal trainer and do our Pilates and our yoga. And then we can look 20 years younger. And we do. And we feel great. And we can have all the Botox we want, and we can have all this until we actually can't make a facial expression. But we look 20 years younger, but it's all a fraud. It's all a fraud. I mean, who are we fooling? We might fool them, but we can't fool this. We can't fool ourselves because the whole time the clock is tick, 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 and it's only going one direction, and that is to death. <laughs> Even more, because we don't really think about death that much, it's, it's incomprehensible, but we do know that being old is kind of creepy, and nobody wants to be creepy. No one wants to be unwanted, no one wants to be unloved, and nobody wants to be invisible. 
Nobody wants to be pitied because of our decrepitude, and no one wants to be the slobbering, doddering person wearing depends, eating baby food. And we all think it's going to be that person, not me, because I'm going to die in my sleep while I'm young and vital, or I'm at least old and look like I'm young and vital. But baby, it's one stroke away. It's one stroke away. It's one car accident and brain injury away. Those people in the rest homes didn't come out of nowhere. They're us. And remember, life is one. No one wants to go there. And the pain of aging is a terrible suffering. And the Buddha had the ability to look it straight in the face and say, this is why life is suffering. Because with it, if we're lucky, we'll have the pain of old age. Otherwise, we just die. Better to look it square in the face and say, this is what I fear. I fear getting old. I fear this. Now, the pain of getting old is just a trailer. It's, it's just a, a preview for the upcoming big show, which is the pain of death. No one really fears they're going to die. Interesting, Jung said of his patients over 40, the strongest fear was the fear of death. That was their one thing. And he said that was the universal deep fear. You know, I somehow can't really believe that. But, you know, I'll, I'll take him at his word. I would think the fear of Alzheimer's would be worse than the fear of death. You never know. But in any case, that's what Jung said. And we certainly know that people will go through any sort of torture to stay alive a little longer. For even for a 5% chance of survival, people will undergo the incredible torture of numerous surgeries, uh, all this chemo, radiation, un undergoing chemo trials that make them feel sick nauseated. No quality of life, but they choose it because it gives them a few more years. It's just postponing it. You know, it's just postponing it for a few more years. This is what is called the thirst for life. Swami Shraddhananda used to say, yes, do you think, why should I stay in this old body so longer? I can't see, I can't hear, I can't, my body doesn't work. And then I see one flower and I go, ah, the thirst for life. We have phobias. We have phobias of, of driving, of flying, a fear of heights, a fear of crowds. Why? Because we fear at the other end of that stick is Mr. Death. And we shouldn't make fun of people who have phobias. We shouldn't complain. We shouldn't think they're somehow less spiritually evolved. Death is an instinctive fear. We have been embodied so many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of times. We have died so many times. It's a deep deep impression in our mind. Every ant that you try to kill runs. Every being, every sentient being fears death. And we have gone through that experience how many hundreds of millions of times? I remember our president of our order, Swami Bhuteshananda, said that there was a monk who had been involved in a terrible bus accident up in the Himalayas. He was, they, he was in this big overloaded, typically Indian overloaded bus going over a typically Indian treacherous road in the Himalayas. They make, they make them just for that purpose. And of course it overturned and went into a river. And the monk survived and he went to the president of our order and he fell at his feet weeping. And he said, Maharaj, I've been a monk for over 30 years. When I was in the river, in that bus, I never once thought of God. I never once thought of my mantra. I never once thought of helping anybody else. I wanted to get out that window and get into air. How could that have happened to me? I've been a monk for over 30 years. And 
Swami Bhuteshnath, our president, said, no, 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 no. No, no, no. Do not criticize yourself. This is a natural human response. It is so deep into our... We all might say, I don't fear death. I'm ready to go anytime. I've said it myself. But then the moment you actually seem like it might be possible, <laughs> we might have a different reaction. Because if we see a car coming towards us, we instinctively go that. If we go over a cliff, we pull back. If we feel like we're drowning, we're aching for air. We get panicky. So we shouldn't, we have to give death its due respect. It's, it's, it's a deeply felt, instinctive drive for life. So the fear of death is with us. And then there's the pain, the suffering of being tied to something we dislike. Ooh. And now we see what in an analytical mind the Buddha had. Because sometimes we are tied to things like an albatross around our neck that we can't get rid of. It might be a relationship. It might be a spouse that maybe we can divorce, but somehow they're in our life and we can't get out of this relationship. It might be a parent. It might be a very unhappy, unhealthy relationship. You can't divorce a parent. You can't divorce a child. You might have a child that is the agony of your life, but you are stuck with it. It might be an illness. It might be a physical illness. It might be a mental illness, a lifetime of depression, a lifetime of schizophrenia, of bipolar disorder, of, of psychosis. And you are, it's that albatross around our neck that we cannot get rid of. It might be an addiction. We might be tied to alcoholism or drug addiction or some other unwholesome addiction that is like a monkey on our back and we can't get rid of it. It eats at us and we can't get rid of it. We are stuck with it. And that is the pain of being and the suffering of being stuck to something and tied to something we dislike. And then the last, the pain of being separated from what we love, whatever or whoever we love. There is no greater pain than losing a child. It's unimaginable. And then there's the pain of losing one's beloved. Then there's the pain of losing one's spouse. Maybe it's losing our pet. We can't make fun of it. It's, it's totally eviscerating. The, the, the pain of losing the person dearest to us. It might be the, the pain of separation. Sometimes we're separated from the ones we love. Our child goes off to college and we have an empty nest and the whole house feels empty. And we know that once they're gone, they really don't come back again. They have their own lives. It might be someone who goes off into the armed forces or goes off on a trip, and we don't know whether they're going to come back again. So we have that pain, that worry, that anxiety, that somehow our life is fractured, and that's a pain. Or whatever we are attached to, when we are separated from that, it is extremely painful because we think it makes who we are. So the truth is nothing is with us forever. The Buddha said all compounded matter is bound to decay. Life is a stream. We go down, we're like sticks going downstream. And for a while we might be united with another stick. We're going together and then another current comes along. Off it goes and we're going at our own pace and they're going at their own. Any time we are attached, whatever we cling to, it will be pulled away from us. And that is the truth and the suffering. And all these comprise the first noble truth. 
the truth of suffering. Now, wasn't that cheerful? Makes you feel warm all over. Yeah. So now we have the second noble truth. I hope it lives better than the last one. <laughs> and this is the origin of the truth of suffering. And the Buddha, psychologist that he was, said the truth, suffering is caused by spiritual ignorance. Spiritual ignorance is brings suffering. And the problem with spiritual ignorance is that it gives us craving. And craving leads to this desire, which in Pali is called tanha. In Sanskrit, it's chisna, and Pali, it's tanha. Now, tanha isn't just general desire, because a desire for enlightenment is good. Desire for the well-being of others is good. Desire for their health and happiness is a good desire. What's a bad desire is thirst for one's own personal gratification. Something for me. So my greed, my thirst for something, my own private satisfaction that just belongs to me and me alone. That is that sort of craving, that thirst for enjoyment and desire. Plumping up our ego on something. Getting private satisfaction from something. That is intrinsically painful because it will go away. This selfish, egotistic desire increases our egotism, and it also increases our sense of separation from others. And Buddha, again, life is one. We are not separate. Anything that increases our egotism is intrinsically painful. Anything that increases our sense of separation from others is intrinsically painful. We are supposed to see all beings as extensions of ourselves. We remember Holy Mother's teachings. No one is a stranger. The whole world is your own. Jesus, love thy neighbor as thyself. So the third noble truth, this is getting better, is there is an end to suffering. Yes, there is suffering. Yes, this is the cause of suffering. But yes, there is an end to suffering, which leads us to the fourth noble truth, which is that there is an end to suffering. The path to this is called the Eightfold Path. And this is what the Buddha teaches us all. The first is that, well, actually, what I really like is that Houston Smith made this so clear. And he said, the four noble truths are like a doctor. He says, yeah, yeah, you've got suffering. Yeah, I see you have suffering. Yeah, but you know what? The good news is that there's, I, the, it's you. You have the suffering because you have this private craving and this desire for your own gratification. But I have a prescription. Yeah. And the prescription, yeah, it is um, the Eightfold Path. And the deal with this Buddha doctor is that there's no pill, no easy way, can't do it. You have to practice. The Eightfold Path is all about us doing it ourselves. And that he promises us, if you do this, you will have what you most desire, which is to be happy. That's all anyone wants. The only reason we engage in these things, these cravings and these desires is because we think these selfish desires, fulfilling them is going to make us happy. But the Buddha reasons it out, said, no, this will not make you happy. Anything that increases our egotism makes us unhappy. But follow this prescription and I promise you will be happy. The first one is right view. We have to reason carefully. We have to really think carefully about our life and say, okay, this isn't working for me. What I am doing right now, my desires for my own personal satisfaction, my own personal happiness, my selfishness, my egocentricity, doesn't work. It never did work. I kept doing it. It doesn't work. We have to really reason correctly because unless we think right, 
Nothing else is going to work either. The second one is right intent. The first one is about our head. The second one is about our heart. Our mind and our heart have to work together. We can't think, yes, this is the right thing, and our heart's going, but I want something else. They have to go together. Our desires have to be working towards enlightenment for the well-being of all and not for our own personal satisfaction. So we have to engage our heart. The third one is right intent. And again, this is the Buddha's use of will. Our willpower has to go towards enlightenment, not again towards personal gratification. You know, we all have will, we just don't use it, unless we want to lose 10 pounds or something. But our will is there underemployed. Any mother who sees her child under a 2,000-pound cart is going to lift that car. Sure will. If there's something precious that we want more than anything else, we will run miles to get it, even though, you know, they've got a boot on. They will do anything to get that. And we have to make our spiritual growth and our development like that. Our intent has to be towards enlightenment. The fourth is right conduct. Ethics is essential. Uh, We can't have a life without ethics and have a spiritual life at the same time. They're completely incompatible. So we have to have an ethical life. And he gives five things five rules for people on a, on, in the Buddhist spiritual path. Rules of conduct. First, don't kill. Second, don't steal. Third, don't lie. Fourth, don't be unchaste, which means for monastics like me, monks and nuns, completely celibate. In committed relationships, it means being completely faithful to your partner, to your spouse or your partner. All traditions put a great deal of emphasis on sexual responsibility. Very important. Can't have a spiritual life without it. And the fifth one is always a surprise, especially for people in the Western tradition that's don't take intoxicants. It's like, what? But the truth is there is a lot of emphasis here on using our will and using our reason, watching our mind. If we're intoxicated, it all goes out the window. Our will loses strength. Our reason goes kaplooey. And we can't really watch our mind very well. So that's why there's the rules with intoxicants. Right. Conduct means examining our own actions. What was my reason for doing that? Was I doing it for the right reason? Was it for selfishness or was it for the benefit of others? Fifth, right livelihood. You know, some occupations are just incompatible with spiritual life. Being a drug dealer is not okay. Being a poison peddler is not okay. Selling alcohol to alcoholics is not okay. Uh, Being a prostitute or a john is not okay because of the thing with sexual responsibility. Anything which makes us lie or deceive others is not okay. Anything which makes us manipulate others is not okay. Anything which makes us feel like we're selling our ethics down the drain is not okay. Better to go and do something else. It's not worth staying in something where we feel tarnished. Sixth, right effort. In order to succeed in spiritual life, We have to use our will again. He was a great person for work out your own salvation. Be a lamp unto yourself. Don't expect someone else is going to do something else for you. Use your will. Seventh, right mindfulness, which is self-examination. What are we thinking right now? Um, We always have to notice where we're thinking because our thoughts will determine our action. What are we thinking right now? Is our thoughts about something that's wholesome and good? Is it something that's actually going to help us towards spiritual illumination? Or is it something that's going to bring us more entanglement, 
more samsara, more suffering. So we always have to watch our mind. Oh, is that where you're going? No, not. This is not going to make you happy. Let's go back. The Dhammapada, which is a collection of the Buddha's sayings, begins with these words. All that we are is a result of what we have thought. Our life is shaped by our mind. We become what we think. Suffering follows unwholesome thoughts the way the wheels follow the oxen on a cart. Joy follows wholesome thought like a shadow that never leaves. That's such a wonderful idea. Finally, right concentration. You know, we all know how hard it is to meditate. You're not the only one. It's hard for everybody. Meditation is hard. Deep concentration is hard. But the truth is, unless we do that first seven steps, it's pretty much impossible. Because unless our mind is purified, we can't really dive into meditation because the mind is too restless. We can't have deep concentration with a restless mind. It's being shaken all over the place. Meditation is not doing a tug-of-war with, with the mind, and it's not going to, into la-la land. So we have to be able to have a calm mind to be able to have to develop wisdom and to really be able to see the world clearly. Otherwise, we have no hope of really being able to engage in right concentration, which is deep focus on one central thought and then going from that into profound absorption. When that absorption happens, we attain joy and tranquility. Then our life really does change. Then we will actually find happiness. The more we're able to do these Four Noble Truths, the more we will be freed from what the Buddha called the three poisons. Spiritual ignorance, craving, and aversion. These three poison our life. The more we do these Four Noble Truths, the more we are freed from these poisons. And then the more we can have the joy and tranquility that is our real nature. Thank you. Om Buddha Sharanam Gachami Dhammam Sharanam Gachami Sangam Sharanam Gachami Om I take refuge in the Buddha I take refuge in the Dharma I take refuge in the Holy Order Om peace 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 be unto us all You've been listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Thanks for listening.